Hello and welcome to the Folklore Scotland podcast. Every two weeks we're going to be bringing you the best of Scottish folklore. Folklore Scotland is a charity founded to protect and preserve Scottish folklore through taking a multimedia approach to compiling and sharing folktales, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. I am Kathy, and today the story we're looking at is Wapiti's story, which is kind of the Scottish Rumpelstiltskin, and we've adapted our version from um, popular rhymes of Scotland, which was collected by Robert Chambers like 200 years ago. We really spend most of the episode talking about tropes and yeah. tales where the fairies want to take a baby and the fact that you defeat them with their true name and how that crops up in the different versions of Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah, it's been a good opportunity to just look at some broader fairy folklore. We hope you enjoy. In the Borderlands village of Kissel Rumpet, there was a good wife whose husband went one day to the fair and never returned. He was a faithless sort of man and not to be depended on. All the village pitied the good wife's plight, but none helped her. She had not left but her house, her prized sow, and her baby boy. Her one hope was that the sow would soon give birth to piglets, and if all went well, her stock would be much increased. But it was not to be, it seemed. For one morning, when she went to the pigsty, she found the sow lying on her back, groaning and grunting like she was at death's door. This was a sore blow to the good wife's heart, and she sat down on the knocking stone and cried harder than she ever had over the loss of her husband. Then, as she sat, wiping her eyes, she chanced to look down the brae, and what did she see but a little old woman making her way up the hill towards the house? She was dressed all in green save for a short white apron tied about her waist, a black velvet hood and a steeple-crowned beaver hat on her head. She walked with a long walking stick, as tall as she was, to help her on her way. Seeing the gentlewoman draw near, the good wife rose and made a curtsy. Weeping, she said, Madam, I'm the most unfortunate woman alive. I didn't wish to hear Piper's news and Fiddler's tales, said the green woman. I ken you've lost your goodman, and I ken you're so sick. Now what will you give me to cure her? Only thing your ladyship madam likes, said the good wife, unaware of with whom she dealt. Let's wet thumbs on the bargain, said the green woman. And so thumbs were wet, and the green woman marched into the pigsty. She glowered at the sow for some time, then began to chant, so as the good wife could barely hear. Pitter patter, halley water. Then from her pocket she drew a small bottle with something oily inside it, and daubed the liquid around the sow's snout, behind her ears and on the tip of her tail. Get up, beast, said the green woman, and no sooner... Then she'd said it, the sow leapt to her feet, and quite the thing was away to her breakfast trough. The good wife of Kittle Rumpet was overcome with joy, and would have kissed the hem of the green woman's dress had she let her. I'm no fond of demonstrations, said the green woman. Now that he righted your sick beast, let's finish our bargain. You'll no find me an unreasonable greedy body. I like I to do a good turn for a small reward. 
All I ask and will have is that lad bared on your bosom. The good wife let out a gasp, for now she saw what she hadn't before. The green woman was a fairy. Falling to her knees, she wept and prayed and begged and flighted, but the fairy would not relent. You may spare your din, she said, scurling as if I was deaf as a doornail. But this I'll tell you, by the law we live on, you cannot take your bairn till the third day after this, and know then if you can tell me my right name. And off she went, away around the pigsty and back down the brae, leaving the good wife to her misery. For a night and a day the good wife could do naught but cry and hold her baby to her chest. On the second day, at a loss for what to do, she went walking in the woods, baby in her arms. She walked deep into the forest to where an old quarry lay, grown over with gorse and home to a spring well. As she approached, she caught the sound of a lint wheel turning and a soft voice singing. The good wife crept closer and peered through the bushes into the quarry below. There was the green fairy, working at her wheel and singing. Little kens our good dame at hame, that Wapiti Sturi is my name. And then the good wife's heart was light once more, for she had the magic word. She walked home with a spring in her step, gleeful at the thought of tricking the old fairy. Feeling much like her old self again, the good wife thought to have some sport with the fairy. On the third day, at the appointed time, she put her baby behind the knocking stone, then sat down on it herself, nightcap askew, a look of great woe on her face. Before long, the green fairy appeared over the hill and called out, Good wife, look it'll rump it. You can wheel what I come for. Stand and deliver. The good wife pretended to weep even harder than before, and fell to her knees, crying, Oh, sweet madam mistress, spare my only bairn and take the weary zoo. I come na here for swine's flesh, said the fairy. Dinna be stubborn, but gie me the bairn instantly. Oh, dear lady mine, wept the good wife, forbear my poor bairn and take myself. The fairy's expression soured. She's clean demented. Why in the earthly world we half an e in their heads would ever want with the likes of thee? This raised the good wife's hackles, for though her eyes were wet and her nose red from crying, she considered herself quite comely. Up she leapt and set her nightcap straight, and making a low curtsy, said, In troth, fair madam, I might hae had the wit to ken the likes of me is nay fair to tie the worst shoestrings of the high and mighty princess, Wapiti Sturry. At that, Wapiti Sturry nearly jumped out of her skin, then turning on her heels, she ran down the hill, screeching her rage for all of Kittle Rumpet to hear. The good wife of Kittle Rumpet laughed until her sides ached, then picked up her baby and went into the house, singing all the way. A goo and a gitty, my bonny wee tyke, he's new he your furries, sin we've gain nick a bane to pike, wee's wheels in his Wapiti Sturries. Okay, so that was Wapiti Sturry. Um, it's a bit more light-hearted than the two stories we've looked at previously, um, but I definitely enjoy it. Yeah, I think it's nice to have the variety of monster-slaying tales and then also ones that are a lot more light-hearted and more something that you can easily see would be told to children and... Mm -hmm as part of a festival or something like that. Yeah. So, fun fact about this story is um, it's categorised um, under the name of the supernatural helper type of story, 
um, in the Arne Thompson method, it's type 500, which means it's considered to be in the same category as Rumpelstiltskin and the English Tim Tat Tot. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite obvious yeah. as soon as you get into it that it's related from a story perspective to Rumpelstiltskin. There's a huge amount of overlap between the two of them. Yeah, it's kind of... Although we have very different sort of cast of characters, a different situation, it's drawing on the same pieces of folklore that Rumpelstiltskin is. Like, as far as the, like, stories about fairies and that kind of thing, it's kind of, it's the importance of names and the stealing babies that is the common theme. What the humans are doing, in my opinion, is just kind of set dressing <laughs> when it comes to, like, what's the common folklore belief that's happening here. Yeah, and it's interesting as well when you look at the history of this type of story there's a suggestion that because there are several different variants of Rumpelstiltskin that you can find across Europe uh, the idea is that they might all be able to be traced back to one kind of master archetype Mm. um, possibly up to 4,000 years ago according to some article that I was reading uh, which was really interesting and yeah. had a, a list of all of the different types of Rumpelstiltskin that people commonly talk about. And actually kind of backing up what you're saying, what the humans are doing does change a fair bit between the tellings, but it's always that they want to take the firstborn child um, and the creature is defeated by its true name. So I saw some, when I was kind of looking into what analysis had already been done for the Rumpelstiltskin style mm. story, there was kind of some confusion about what the motivations of the magical helper were. Um, but in my opinion, based on um, broader fairy lore, the goal of the magical helper is always to get a human child. Um, that just makes sense. <laughs> we have a lot of stories about changelings. Um, we have a lot of stories where human heroes are raised by fairies or kidnapped by fairies. Um, I think Merlin is one. Yep. Lancelot also. It's very common. And there is, I'm not sure which came about first, but there's a broader folklore about fairies that um, is that fairy children are rare and they're a dying race. So the reason that they steal human children all the time is to kind of supplement their population because they're dying and it's, it's the only way they can do it. Um, and whether that was kind of a bit of lore that came about because changeling lore already existed or vice versa, I don't know. But it all kind of ties into the broader beliefs. It definitely does. And it's interesting, uh, I've 
kind of have also read other things that were trying to work out what the motivation of the the supernatural character could be. It makes sense in a way that it would tie in to changing folklore and a lot of the other tales where a baby is a, a sacrifice for like a, a perceived wrong to the fairy kingdom and then the, the child would go and be raised by the fairies. It's kind of the mm. ultimate loss, I guess. Um, but I think some other interpretations of it that I thought were interesting was about the potential representation for the the Rumpelstiltskin or Wapiti Story character to almost be a nature mm. spirit. Yeah. So obviously Rumpelstiltskin has brains in Wapiti Story. It's about a pig like being healthy enough to go on and have piglets mm-hmm. of her own. And it's the same sort of idea of future prosperity and being able to provide food. I don't I think that that's it's not an interpretation that I actually have really thought of before myself for this kind of story mm. even though it really makes sense and ties into a lot of other old myths that we have about trying to secure a good harvest and yeah like wealth and happiness and yeah food for the community I was looking at um thought it could be um, about a time when a sort of sacrifice would be necessary to ensure a good harvest Um, and I kind of thought about that a bit further and I kind of felt it's possibly this is kind of a cultural shift moment because you have um, the old beliefs in the fairies which used to be more like gods um, and sort of gods who are uncaring and selfish and mean they demand sacrifices Mm. but they have a lot of power and then you have Christianity coming in where that kind of thing is no longer necessary you don't need to sacrifice people for a good harvest so it's this kind of you can reap the reward from this old god but you don't have to pay the price like it kind of seems like oh well like there's a new god now so we can outsmart the old gods we don't have to do this anymore like there's still some belief in them but it's not as a kind of all-powerful force anymore um yeah the the old god has also been shrunk down into some little elf or dwarf or fairy figure that has power beyond what a human can do but is also obviously like you were saying not at the height of their power that they would have had previously and in other tales and um, cultural settings so i also thought it's possible this these kind of stories could a little bit be almost like a bit of a fantasy because um it's kind of like sort of if changeling stories were sort of came about as a way to cope with the child's death, sort of telling yourself that the baby is alive and it's happy with the fairies and you have it like your your kid is okay. 
Um, this could be a kind of fantasy where you get to beat the odds and you get to keep your child alive because you can outsmart fate and outsmart um, the supernatural force. Yeah, you can outsmart potential loss if you're lucky and cunning enough. And that's actually a thread that you can find in a lot of fairy tales. So many of them are about freak circumstances or abilities or friends that allow you to overcome something that ought to be impossible. And I think that by itself as a concept is very reassuring and it is evidently going to crop up in a lot of stories that we like to tell each other, but especially ones that we like to tell children from the point of view of fairy tales and folk tales are often told by mothers and aunts and grandmothers to their children. I don't think that there's anything more reassuring that you could tell a child that uh, other than if you're smart and lucky you can do anything basically even if the odds are completely against you and you've made a deal that you kind of ought to keep to based on mm. honour codes and morality at the time, but still, if it's so awful that you have to break it, you could do. The other kind of common motif that we have in this tale is the need for a deal to get what they want. They can't just take it despite being a supernatural creature. Um, and this is just really common in folklore all over the place, mm. especially deals that are about following the letter and not the spirit as a way to trick humans. Some kind of fun trivia that could be a way to think about uh, why a supernatural being might need a deal um, in this story is um, often it was thought that a newborn baby and the mother would be in danger of being stolen by the fairies until the baby was christened. After the baby's christened, its soul um, is safe from the corrupting forces of fairies and the supernatural. So it could be a kind of way of claiming this child's soul fairly as being like, well, it belongs to me now, it doesn't belong to God. Um, as a kind of explanation, but um, these things are very inconsistent. Sometimes they just steal babies, so... <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. So it's interesting that you have tales in which a baby is taken and maybe the parents have to try and get the baby back, versus ones like this one like Rapunzel, that there's a deal. It's also why I have seen people write uh, interesting think pieces and variations of Rumpelstiltskin from Rumpelstiltskin's perspective, because if you're a supernatural entity that wants a child, what's stopping you? <laughs> if you have the power to cure a, a so that no one knows why it's ill, or spin straw into gold, or whatever it is that you do in the version of your tale. 
why would you not just take the child if it's what mm. you want? It would make sense that there has to be something in the background of the story that we have almost forgotten as yeah. a cultural belief that help explain that it would help explain that to yeah. to people who told that regularly. And also, we know that a lot of so I think the ancient Romans again had particular rights for when a baby was old enough and would be named and given talismans and things like that. Infant mortality has been high for a shockingly long time. It makes sense that you would have that kind of anxiety, at least in the background of mm. your folk tales. It's again this kind of feeling of like, well, if, if the baby's born like with a deal, then that's like correct and right and you can't do anything about it. Like, if the baby's taken, then it's almost like fair and square. You made a deal. You can't do anything about it now. Mm. You can't steal it back. You have to circumvent this deal somehow. Yeah, you have to abide by the terms that you've agreed. Mm -hmm. If you can still follow those terms but find a loophole, well, you know, mm -hmm. fair enough. You've just been appropriately cunning enough to win. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to Power of Names. Power of Names. <laughs> Which, again, is super common the world over in um, book stories, particularly stories relating to elemental beings, supernatural elemental beings like fairies, like djinn, everywhere. The name is very important. As an example, I found a Welsh story where a fairy maiden is forced to marry a man because he knows her name. Um, bad. Bad. <laughs> Evil. <laughs> um, and then of course there's Rumpelstiltskin, Wapiti Sturry. Um, there's a lot of references to a king and queen of Elfheim or the fairyland, uh, but we don't get their names because we're not allowed to know that. Later on we get things like Oberon and Titania and Mab, but I read that those are later imports, they're not originally, we don't have, really have a traditional name for the figures. Well, yeah, I mean, Titania and Oberon yes. are not Celtic names, are they? Yes. <laughs> like, quite obviously. Mab is supposed to be from Ireland, like Queen Mab, Queen Maeve, sometimes mm -hmm. the Queen of the Fairies, but like... I read that was a later edition. Similarly, it's advised that humans withhold their name when dealing with fairies. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to bring up. Yeah. The uh, Ainsel, isn't it? What you're yeah. supposed to respond the when Ainsel, the fairy asks you. Which means my own self. Um, so, oh, really? I never yeah, knew that was Ain, so what it was. Um, so it's Ainsel, which is own self. Which means, so you tell the fairy... When they ask your name, my name is Me Ain't Sell. So then when the other fairies ask who hurt you, they say, Me Ain't Sell, Me Ain't Sell, and they're just saying my own self, my own self. So you can't suffer any retribution because they just think they're saying they hurt themselves. <laughs> Which, again, classic, I mean, happens in the Odyssey. That's, yeah, that's a what really I fun, cunning uh, way to get around it. 
But interesting, I actually always thought, or at least had thought in that brief moment that you said my own self, that it was almost you sealing your own name. You're saying that you belong to you, so the fairy can't mm. have any power over you. Um, but no, it's, it's yeah. more interesting, actually. <laughs> it's The fairy then is just like, oh, I hurt myself. Yeah. And all of the other fairies are like, ugh, classic. Well, that's a you problem, isn't it? <laughs> With fairy names, it's a similar vein to, like, speak of the devil and he shall appear. Mm. You're not even supposed to refer to them as fairies, because then they'll get you. So you're supposed to say things like the good folk, the other crowd, the fair folk, the good neighbours, to kind of keep them off your back. Um, mm -hmm. It's just a big theme of the importance of names and yeah. wapiti story probably means to whip up dust, to whip up stir, um, which is either just a funny little name and or she like runs very fast and whips up clouds of dust or she's a troublemaker or like it could be a funny little like nature thing about like a wind deity but um, oh. I think it's more likely it's just meant to be funny but <laughs> I just thought that was also a fun interpretation. Yeah, the uh, names in this type of story are always ridiculous ones that you wouldn't be able to guess and that's why the hero or heroine or messenger that they employ to go and find out the name always has to incredibly conveniently overhear it. I suppose I just find it particularly interesting that the villain is always defeated almost by their own hand if they weren't out singing their name in an incredibly <laughs> Julius Caesar type of narcissism. Yeah. Then they would win. They would get away with exactly what they're trying to do if it weren't for the meddling kids, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's every single time they're just so possessed with pride and assuredness that they're going to win. They're like, oh, I can just sing my name for anyone to hear and it's definitely not going to like come back to bite me. <laughs> There's no way, this being my only weakness, it could be unwise for me to shout it from the rooftops. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> Gosh, the good wife of Kittle Rumpet, she's so... <laughs> She is an icon for me now <laughs> in several ways, but especially deciding that now that she has the answer, she's going to have some fun <laughs> with the fairy that's already tried to take her baby away from her. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, does she want to get cursed? I think that's how you get cursed. So bold. Like, I would just be... Like, the second I saw Wapiti Stewie, I would just shout her name and be like, oh, okay, she's gone. <laughs> like, this was directly from, like, the original um, sort of first recording of this story we have is she's like, oh, well, I feel like myself again, so I think I'll just have a bit of fun. <laughs> I quite like, actually, that that's made explicit in this version of the telling, because in... The other versions of Rumpelstiltskin that you read, that you have three guesses, they still always make a point of using the first two mm. and saying something ridiculous that they know is wrong. Yeah. And then, I mean, I guess like pulling a 
a, a Uno reverse card, like, haha, well, actually, <laughs> no, I do know who you are. I've flipped the script. It's an incredible, bold <laughs> maneuver when your child's life is on the line here. Yeah, we're just really, we're just really experiencing some glee over <sighs> being able to cheat fate and death and the forces of nature. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't feel buoyed? <laughs> yeah, I can see how that might give you quite an emotional high <laughs> that made you feel invincible. Um, I noticed in these kind of stories, the fairy creature tends to have like a very exaggerated reaction to hearing their name. They mm. um, tend to like jump out of their skin or like I think in the Rumpelstiltskin one I read he stamps his foot so hard it goes into the ground and then when he tries to pull it out he rips himself in two instead. <laughs> yeah, that's what the telling is in the original Grimm yeah. version, I think. He yeah. Rips himself in two. It's a bit of a power move to make against a supernatural <laughs> creature <laughs> saying their name. <laughs> and I suppose it ties into, again, a lot of the archetypes that you tend to see for the hero and the heroine, which is just that they're prepared to do something that's impossible really just because they want to. They're, they don't seem to ever be afflicted with doubt no. um, or fear that often in no. these old kind of folk tales, which is very interesting because I think in modern stories we like having heroes that are conflicted mm. that deal with fear and that have their darkest moment where they think I don't actually think I can save the world or my baby or whatever it is that's in danger this good wife is so confident and so pleased and relieved she's like I'm going to have a little jest with the fairy <laughs> the old Folktale heroes are ones to just completely look up to and maybe ones that we're more interested in now are more about working through psychological states that we all mm. relate to in smaller, more realistic ways. I haven't thought greatly about like a Jungian interpretation of this tale, but um, it could very easily just say she um went into the forest of her subconscious and found the answer within herself and <laughs> got over I don't know the depression of losing her husband though I don't know she doesn't care she got over the depression of the pig being sick I don't know became her whole self again and um just verbally destroyed a fairy <laughs> <laughs> so that was actually one thing that I was trying to work out because in all of the comparisons that I've seen of other Rumpelstiltskin tales, Rumpelstil the Rumpelstiltskin character is always a man, I think, apart from in one Welsh version of the tale that I've seen. Mm. And often the person that learns the name is also a man, but usually the husband of the woman who's made the deal, mm. or sometimes a messenger that she pays. And so I was really, really interested about that gender kind of switch and the fact that the cast of Whoopity Story is 
really two women. Yeah. <laughs> They're the only ones that matter in this story. It's very pared down. And I actually wondered if it's to do with the little hint that exists in the version that you found, the really mm. old one, that talks about uh, the final battle of the Jacobite rebellion. Mm. And if the absence of men in this piece of folklore and her precarious situation is almost a way of acknowledging the amount of death and loss in those battles without really looking at it face on. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me given the amount of songs and stories that we have that are Mm. just about husbands and fiancés and sons and fathers dying. Um, yeah, related to the Jacobite Rebellion. Hmm. Yeah, it's maybe not quite the case. The Whoppity story, who doesn't seem to care that her husband's <laughs> gone, just abandoned her. Yeah. But I can also see how in that situation where you have so many ballads about how sad everybody is that these young men <laughs> have all left never to return you might sometimes have a story in which them leaving and never returning isn't the worst thing that's ever happened and (laughs) you still get to save your family and your farm and your life without them through your own yeah initiative and your own power i feel like the folk tales that we tend to hear about are always about young men doing something heroic and marrying a princess yeah. You don't tend to hear about a woman saving a baby from an evil woman. Yeah. Um, and it seems like it seems like we have kind of a few instances of that sort of thing in in Scottish stories, mm-hmm. like um Tamlin. Mm-hmm. It's a woman saving a man from an evil woman. Um it's a bit more complicated than that, but that's that's the <laughs> we will get into that someday. <laughs> someday, that's essentially what the story is. Um, yeah. And I suppose you could consider is um, this image of an old woman with a staff coming out of the wilderness in any way related to the Kalyak that we talked about in our first episode. Mm-hmm. Um, could be. Would be the um, well, you do get a lot of sort of smaller hag like witchy figures that are from later folklore related to the Kaliak, where this goddess has become very small and just like a little bogeyman monster. Um, mm. But yeah, I wonder if this notion of an old woman of the wilderness. Um, is somewhat still alive in people's minds. Maybe that's why it felt natural that it would be a supernatural woman as opposed to um, a man. And I suppose thinking about um, other nature-coded women that are evil, you also have like the green ladies in Arthurian tellings, mm. which I think I did a very, very, very brief Google for this um i think some people had said was a a celtic 
flavoured trope and that you mm. didn't tend to have that in other tales. Which I thought was interesting. And since we specify about the about the fact that Wapiti's story wears green, like maybe mm. there's something there. Yeah, the colour green is definitely it's used a lot in fairy stories as kind of telltale sign that this is a supernatural mm. creature or um I know some characters and other human characters in other stories when they are deliberately seeking fairies out they might wear green um I know that in the sort of uh some of the sort of fairy faith that is still alive in Ireland um they advise to just not wear green because you'll probably get kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very easy visual connection to have. I do find it interesting that um, the good wife assumes that this is a lady that she's talking to, despite the fact Wapiti's story is wearing an apron. She just she just got something in her bearing that's like, oh, well, this is someone important, even though she seems to be someone who works <laughs> yeah and I suppose that can you can easily see a relation with that with the way that people talk about the court of fairies and the fairy queen and the fairy king mm. we seem to have decided that all fairies are aristocratic even if they're hags that live in a cave in the <laughs> forest which is is interesting maybe it's just the best way people several hundred years ago could formulate power and influence and the ability to give punishment and make mm. deals that you couldn't really fight against. Another kind of motif that um, I didn't put into our version of the story but um, in the original telling there's a mention that the staff that she has is like um, oh it's like you know, the kind of staff that you used to see old men and women carrying but you never see these days? She had one of those. Um, it's super common to have fairy stories where, much like a sort of modern ghost story, you can tell something's wrong because they're wearing clothes that are a few centuries old mm. or there's something off about the time they seem displaced. And it's partly, like, there's a lot of crisscrossing over with kind of believing that fairies are sort of their own entities in this own land and believing that they are kind of interchangeable with the spirits of the dead. And mm. I think it's a lot in Brittany. Um, they're often like extremely, extremely associated with the dead and the afterlife. Well, I suppose one thing that I noticed in this as well uh, was her saying that they should wet bums mm. on the deal, which I, I don't know if that's a phrase that you've seen and heard before. Um, I mean, I know what it means, so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can work it like out from I, context, of course. But... I think I've heard it before, but yeah, it's, it's for anyone who's not sure, it's uh, you lick your... Thumb. you each lick your thumb and then you press them together so it's like it's kind of like spitting in your hands and shaking hands 
It's like an exchanging of bodily fluids to seal a pact. It also made me think of actually Indian mythology. They have the, the concept of sacred hospitality and of like if you make a deal or if you share salt, if you share bread, if you spend a certain amount of time with somebody and you make an agreement, you're supposed to keep to it. It's like a, a sign that you're both good, decent people. So I remember one in particular, this story where a woman manages to get her husband's soul back from the dead because she uses these loopholes of sacred hospitality and mm. is talking to death and is like, oh, well, but you had some of my bread, so now you have to do me a favour kind of mm. thing. We've, we've got a deal here. Um, and I suppose I just found it interesting that you would still give a fairy such, uh, and indeed any supernatural entity, such a physical presence. Like mm. sometimes you make them more ghostly. Uh, you talk about how they like walk through the grass and then there's no footsteps mm. or hoof prints left or whatever. Mm. Um, so it was just interesting to me that she can still wet her thumbs, <laughs> I guess, and that you would ever do that with a fairy I don't think I would want to have some strange woman saliva <laughs> on my thumb but <laughs> you know yeah I suppose it's it is another aspect of just um making this this deal very very binding mm, yes in the story um and I guess um like wetting thumbs is just a kind of archaic way of sealing a deal um part of me like this is pure um me just wondering i, I kind of wonder if it used to be blood yeah because that just seems like a thing that people would do <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i mean you people talk about blood oaths and blood pacts and things yeah and it it makes sense in terms of, like, this deal means a lot and is something that I'll stand by and will really hold myself to. There is kind of this, um, like, we, we've talked about deals being recurrent themes in, like, fairy stories, but it's quite, um, there's just nothing you can do about it. It's like, she's made the bargain, she's said yes, and now nothing in the world can stop this from going through. She's powerless. She can't take the baby and run away. She just has to wait for her fate mm. unless she can find this loophole. I imagine it's one of those details that perhaps, like, at the time that this was recorded, it wasn't something that people would really think about. I imagine they'd just be like, yep, that's what you do. <laughs> but, I mean, oh, no, she wet her thumbs with a mysterious green woman. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like, that. how can this end well for you? <laughs> Since we've been comparing it so much with other Rumpelstiltskin stories, usually the way that those end is that the miller's daughter or whoever has married a king and now has a baby and a wealthy kingdom and her life is as safe as it can ever reasonably be at mm -hmm. the end of a fairy tale. And then at the end of this story, all the good wife has is her pig and her baby still. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, there's no no man comes charging in to provide for her. No. There's no guarantee that her pig won't fall ill again at some point before it has piglets for her. Yeah. There's no change in status from her for her. She's just kind of. It's almost like um, saying the man was gone was more just a way to establish how important the pig is. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of, yeah, like the inciting incident is the sick pig, not the absent husband. <laughs> yeah. And obviously that's fine. I don't, that's not what I'm <laughs> trying to highlight too much here. I'm more interested in the fact that the resolution feels so narrow, I yeah. guess. It is very much just like... We're only concerned about the deal here. The rest of her poor socioeconomic circumstances, we're not looking at. That's that's hmm. background dressing <laughs> to set up why she would take this crazy deal. Yeah. Uh, but we're not interested in fixing that by the end of the story. Yeah. I mean, there probably would be some stories that have, like, she happens upon like a stash of fairy gold as well mm. like I think that would be like that's definitely quite common it's like as well as like the resolution of the conflict in the story the main characters usually find something that's gonna magically lift them out of the circumstances that led to the story in the first place yeah they almost always end up a lot safer than they were at the beginning of the story and she just doesn't, <laughs> um, in what seems yeah. like pretty direct contrast to all of the other variants yeah. that I've seen of this tale, which I don't have really some well-considered analysis of. <laughs> I just thought it was an interesting thing to note. Yeah, I would like to think from my own peace of mind that because the pig was cured by a fairy, this pig can now not get sick and is possibly mm. immortal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's definitely the best interpretation that you can have for this story. I suppose that's like another aspect is because um, the deal happened fair and square and she got out of it by following the rules. Um, there can be no retribution. There's mm. no um, taking back of the blessing. It's done as fair and square everyone's followed the rules yeah there isn't some ominous sense that we're left with at the end it is fairly clear that the story's done mm -hmm. it's just interesting that it would choose like we would choose to leave the story here yeah maybe for Maybe for your average person back then, a pregnant pig was just what happiness was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so who are you picking? Um, OG Rumpelstiltskin or Scottish Rumpelstiltskin? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting question. Because Rumpelstiltskin in creating gold out of straw, I think he maybe is more magical, don't come for me, <laughs> than Whoppity Story. I think maybe he has more power. I think that might be harder than mm. being a slightly supernatural vet 
But that being said, um, Whoppity Story, I think it's a better name <laughs> for me personally. I think it's it's more fun. I like her determination. She's mm-hmm. like, you've got three days. I'm not waiting around a year for you to have a baby. We're <laughs> in and out. I've got yeah. other deals to make around the world. I'm I'm gone. Yeah. I think another aspect of it is fairy creatures are always so inhuman. It's like mm. I don't I think she genuinely does think that asking for the baby is a small thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, with the Rumpelstiltskin story there is a lot more to be gained for our protagonist, I think. But you know, maybe we need to just learn to be happy with a pig. Maybe true happiness is a pregnant pig. Yeah. And we could all just settle for less. <laughs> There we go. That's that's a good folktale moral. (laughs) Appreciate what you have. The Folklore Scotland podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that tells the tales of the past with the technology of today. You can visit our website at www.folklorescotland.com. If you're keen to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at folklorescotland.com. You can also find all of our social media links and a complete list of sources for today's topics in the show notes. Your hosts today were Rosie and Kathy, and a shout out to Joanne and Taylor for providing research. Also, many thanks to Lindley for providing this episode's artwork. You can find Lindley's website and social media in the show notes as well. The music this week was Sky Coolin' by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>